Well, I don't think I have to work really hard to talk about this season that we've been in. It's almost funny to call it a season now because it's more than a year and you think you kind of move through seasons inside of a year. But there's one question that I know that as we come to the hope of the vaccination and, and perhaps we can start getting back, here's, here's a question I know we've always, that we've all wrestled with, and this is going to be the basis we talk about today. When can we get back to normal? When can we just go back to the way that it all was before? When, when can we do away with everything? When, when does it just become something that I recognize again? Has anybody felt that? I mean, I mean, I felt it for sure because one day I was preaching to a church that I love, and then the next day I was a televangelist. I mean, it just like changed, you know, you know overnight. And see, the irony was last year. I'm, I'm not going to forget this because the quarantine and the shutdown started on my birthday. It was a Sunday, and so I'd kind of looked forward, you know, going to church on my birthday, and nobody showed up that day. There were six of us here, all trying to figure out what we were supposed to be doing. So the question begs, when do we get back to normal? And that's what I want to talk about. What's the normal that we go back to? Because there is a blessing in COVID, and I've talked about it before. What COVID did, and I'm not trying to diminish all the negative and tragic effects of COVID, but when it comes to the church, one thing that COVID did is it stripped away any illusion we had of what church is, right? I, I mean, it just totally upset the apple cart. It, it took away all the things that perhaps we propped up and put into place and, and made us feel like we were on the right track. And it sent us back to this question of, does church really matter. What is this thing called church? So what I want to do today, whether you're a member of this church or not, I want to make a case for the local church once again. Now, you may not be a believer in Jesus. You may think, okay, this, this doesn't apply to me because I don't know where to fit this into my world. I want to encourage you to at least hang with me long enough because if you get a vision of what church is supposed to be, not all the things that we've made it, but what it was intended to be, that just may be the very spark that God uses to open your eyes. Ah, that's what he was wanting. That I can get on board. Because I, I'll, I'll be the first to confess, pre-COVID, we layered a lot of things on top of church that Jesus didn't intend. Okay, I'm guilty too. But COVID has allowed us to strip back a lot of that stuff, and now we can go, okay, well, what does it really matter? And I want to dive into that question. We're going to tackle it today and over the next coming weeks because I want us to reclaim the Jesus view of what church is supposed to be, the biblical view. What, what does Jesus hold out as this idea of church? And Jesus launches this whole effort. So I'm going to give you two scriptures today, and we're going to be in two places. And if you want to follow along, if you, want to have, if you have a Bible or an app, open that up. If you don't, you've got a smartphone or a device, go to westernhills.church. You'll look for message, scriptures, and resources. I've got these two there. The first one's going to be found in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. And I really do want to encourage you to have your Bible open for these things, because 
I'm going to be having you highlight some stuff and take some notes. This is really going to be more of a conversation today that we're starting. And it's just going to be a straightforward teaching on what is this thing called church. We pick up in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to find Jesus introduced this idea of church. And he's got his disciples, his, his posse he's traveling with. And these were the guys that had previously been fishermen. They had been a tax collector. They had been just working Joes. And Jesus walks into their life and says, I want you to follow me. I'm going to teach you some things. I'm going to show you some things. And they don't know it yet, but he's going to hand the whole enterprise over to them. Well, they think they're on an upward ascendancy here. They think this could be the guy that's going to overthrow the, the entity, the, the powers that have been oppressing us. And so Jesus is moving through the country with them. And we have this encounter and this conversation. And I'm going to take it apart in just a second. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and this is a region that we actually know where it is, and you can go visit this place now. He asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others prophets. Now, hold right there. Jesus says something that I do not recommend you try. Because what he's doing, he's traveling along with his guys, and suddenly he spins around and says, Hey, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? Now, that would be like me getting up there and going, hey, did you talk about me last week? And you're like, no, you're not that important. Nobody's talking about you. But Jesus is, and for good reason, people are talking about him. So the first guys that speak up, they give the headlines. Well, here's what we've seen on Facebook, and here's what Twitter's saying. And so there's all these guesses going on about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus has done some things that are pretty impressive. And he's taught some things that are pretty bold. So he is becoming word of mouth known. He's going viral. And so here's some of the theories. Here's some of the ideas about what he is. So Jesus now says, thank you for sharing that. And he goes on. And he looks at them and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? So now he locks in on them. And they probably get a little squeamish. Because, I mean, let's face it. If Jesus asks you a direct question, you don't want to get it wrong, right? Because this could go into the Bible forever. That's a lot of pressure. So most of these guys kept their mouths shut. Peter, who, if you know anything about Peter, and you probably heard the name Peter before you arrived today, even if you don't know much about Jesus or much about the Bible, Peter was a fisherman. And Peter always was one to be kind of bold. He sort of, he sort of um, jumped out before he thought. You know, with Peter, it's, it's ready, fire, aim. You know, that's what Peter's doing. So Peter's willing to say, first, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Now that word Messiah means you're the one that God promised He was going to send. You can also see it, you're the anointed one. You're the chosen one. You're the one 
that we have been looking for for not just years, not just decades, but centuries. We've been hoping and praying. And Peter is making this declaration, that's you. All of our collective hopes and dreams and wishes and future vision is on you. You're the son of the living God. Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for that was not revealed to you by the flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. You can probably hear Simon go, got it right. And I tell you that you are Peter. Now, just pause just for a second, because it says he was Simon Peter. That's sort of looking backwards at it now. At that moment, he was known as Simon. He's about to get a nickname. Jesus is about to hand him a nickname that's Peter, and it means rock. Okay? You are Peter, and, you're on, and on this rock I will build my church. We're going to come back to that word in just a second. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, what he's doing there is, his, Peter, that statement that you just made, that confession of faith, that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That statement, that is a solid bedrock kind of statement. And so what he's doing, he says, Peter, or he says, Simon, that's a rock kind of thing to say. I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. And on that statement, now we can go all kinds of different places with this, so you've got to understand. And he says, and on this rock, the this is the statement... Uh, the, this is the statement, that, the confession of faith that Peter just made. I'm going to build my church. He says, around that idea, I'm going to create a group of people that are so bought into that that nothing's going to stop them. Now, unfortunately, though, because we've so layered this up, when we get to this word, church, we start thinking about what? A building. You know, I'm going to build my building on it. Or I'm going to build my institution on it. And I want to go back and do a little bit of redemptive work here on that. See, when this has become a word, it's a great word. I, I love the word church. But it's become a word that when I say that word, we immediately fill our head with a different vision, don't we? And let me do a little unpacking to show you what Jesus is getting at. Because he says, I'm going to build my church. And when he does that, the word he's using in Greek is called ekklesia. And it's important to know that because it does not have anything to do with a building when he says it. It's an assembly. It's actually a political word. It's for the marketplace and the municipality and the government. And it says, there's an assembly that I'm going to create. A, a body of people, and body is going to come up all over your New Testament. But what it is, it's a body of people, it's a movement that's going to come together. And so he says, I'm going to create my movement, my assembly, my, um, my campaign around this idea. And so when we see the word church, we need to be thinking about not four walls, but a movement of people that are coming together around that one single concept that Jesus Christ is the Son 
of the living God. Without it, there's nothing else. Now, step back into Peter's role just for a second. Because he was brave enough to give an answer. He was brave enough to give an answer. And then at the moment, when Jesus says, that's absolutely right, and I'm going to build this church and nothing's going to stop it. I can only imagine that what went through Peter was, yes, we've picked the right guy. We're headed towards uh, power. We're headed towards leadership roles in this new regime. We're going to be in the new administration, this new kingdom. And he thinks it's all going to go uphill from here. It's all going to be an upward climb. But that's not what happened, is it? See, at this moment, Peter only sees the positive. But he doesn't yet understand that Jesus is going to be crucified. And he's going to be buried. And they're going to be scattered. He, He can't see another way forward. But he can envision this dream right now. Because this dream fits his dream. This, this vision fits his vision, what he'd always hoped for. And then when he experiences the resurrection of Jesus, everything changes. And what I want to suggest today is that between the cross and the resurrection, in the middle of that dark place, in the middle of that depression, Peter and the other guys asked the question, when does it just go back to normal? And the resurrection that we celebrated last week on Easter declared to Peter and everyone else, there is no going back to normal. Because the resurrection completely changed everything. And it changed even Peter's vision about what this assembly, this movement, this church was going to be. And it was not going to ascend to the seats of power, but it was going to move throughout and change the world. And here's where I want to land today to show you just what did it look like for them. Because if we can get back to what was for them, then we can understand what's the new normal, not based on COVID, but based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, second verse I want you to turn to is found in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We'll start there. Now, what we have here is we have a description of what happened after the resurrection. This is the people that, that came to Jerusalem and they heard this message. And they begin to form these assemblies or this community together. And then Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, Luke gives us these summary statements. He says, here's what it looked like when their world got turned upside down by this message that Jesus is the Messiah and he rose from the grave. And so what does it look like when assembly, a church, comes together around that? Here's what Luke tells us. They, this is all the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Luke gives us a summary. He says, says, people came to believe this message. That statement that Peter had uttered so many months and years ago. 
And they came and they began, they fell in love with it. And they began to form these communities. And Luke says, they devoted themselves. This community, this assembly began to devote itself to something. You ever devote yourself to something? I'm going to devote myself to an exercise regime. I'm going to devote myself to this project I've got outside at my house. I'm going to devote myself, you know, I'm going to devote a season to accomplish this. So this is what they dialed in on, and this is what I want to pick apart. So if you look at Acts 2.42, that's the verse that I want you to circle. That's the verse that I want you to pay attention to. It gives us four things, and I'm just going to teach our way through it very quickly. The first thing is, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. So the very first thing that we learn about this is, this is a learning community. Each one of these are going to describe what kind of community this is. And this we're going to pick up. This is a learning community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They heard the message, but now the question had to be asked, what does life look like if we believe that Jesus is the Son? What does this Jesus life now consist of? And that had to be taught. That, that had to be teased out. These guys had spent three years walking with Jesus and seeing how he acted, seeing how he behaved, saw how he treated other people. They were with him the night that he took the Lord's Supper with them. And he says, to that, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And so they take that to heart. And they begin to teach this new way of life. And they begin to look at scriptures. And they begin to look at the Old Testament. And they begin to see where Jesus was already being identified long before they recognized who he was. And they learn to do this life together. Because see, it's not simply Bible knowledge that they're trying to get across. But life application. It's not about just knowing the right things. Knowing's important. I'm not knocking knowing. But for the Christian faith, it's about becoming. And being transformed by that. So that your life begins to look different. Where else in the world are you going to learn what it means to live a life of peace and joy and patience and gentleness. Those are not markers of our world, are they? I, I, I don't seem to dial in any news station, I don't care left or right, and find the latest headline on gentleness breaking out all over the place. We're not wired that way, are we? But Jesus invites us into that kind of community. And so, does church really matter? Where else can you learn such things? And see, it's not simply a mind game. It's more about an apprenticeship. When you go into an apprenticeship, you learn a craft and a trade. And that's what the disciples were doing when they followed them around. Disciple means the follower the learner, the student, the one that was trying to emulate the life of Jesus. And so first and foremost, Luke tells us this community, this assembly is a learning community, learning the ways of Jesus. Now, if you go back to to the verse, the next part says, and they had fellowship together. Now, that's, that's a churchy word. Fellowship. I, I don't know that you too many times outside of, of church. But 
what I want to do is take that word apart just for a second because there's another one that sounds just like the same thing, almost like he repeats it twice when you get down to breaking of bread. But fellowship is this word, koinonia. And koinonia, for many in this group, they're very familiar with this word because we have a summer camp called Camp Koinonia. And it does mean fellowship, but unfortunately, just like the word church, fellowship has lost some of its meaning to us, and we think fellowship is anytime you just get together and you're having coffee together. Uh, that's important. I'll get to that in a second. But fellowship is far more intentional than that. Koinonia is far more intentional to that. When you get down to the bottom of those verses, verse 43 and verse 44, it talks about them sharing and having everything in common. And what they're doing is they're taking care of each other. There's estimates that, that um, may, maybe as many as 100,000 Jews came into to Jerusalem, maybe up to a million for the Passover, and then they hear about Jesus. And thousands, they've traveled, they hear about Jesus, they were supposed to head back home, but this is too good of news, and so they're still hanging around in the area. They're just they're meeting people, and people are housing them, and they're being hospital, and they're feeding them, and they're taking care of them so they can be part of this community, and they can keep learning. That's what koinonia means. And so the second thing that what they're telling us about is not just that they were sharing coffee together, but they were a sharing and caring community. And there's the second thing about church. That's a sharing and a caring community. And some of you have those stories where you would say, I was at a low point. I, I was fighting this trouble, this financial difficulty. I was sick in the hospital, whatever it was. And, you say, and then the church showed up. And, and then the church came by, or people from the church came by, maybe said. And you're reminded of what it meant to be a sharing and caring community. That even though out in the world it tends to be every man, every woman, every child for themselves, that there's a group of people that are willing to organize their lives differently and be a sharing and community. And it was a very sacrificial sharing, too, by the way. See, I, it's easy to share for our family, but I understand what was going on in this first church. They were sharing for people that they'd met three weeks ago, that they were just now getting to know. They're inviting strangers in and being very hospitable in a very kind and loving way because the way of Jesus was breaking out among them. <clears throat> the third one talks about breaking bread together. And when it says they broke bread every day, if, if you've been in church for a while, that probably sounds like one thing to you. That sounds like the Lord's Supper, what, the bread that we just took earlier. And if maybe you're new to church, when you hear breaking bread, you're thinking, well, that sounds like eating together. You know, they got together and they had a meal. And what I would tell you is you're both right. Inside of this, it, it's a both-and type thing because often in the early church, the communion, the Lord's Supper, was taken at a time of a meal. And it was brought together inside of this fellowship of eating together. And so they're both right. And so what I think Luke is telling us is here is that they were, and I made up a word, I can do that, Preacher privilege. They're a togethering community. This is that part about hanging out. 
This is that part about sharing time together, getting to know one another, conversing, knowing what makes you concerned, what gives you hope, what are you worried about, what are you anxious about, sharing one another's burden. So they were a togethering community. And we're going to tease all these out more as we go through the series. But, but what I want you to know is it, they became a place where everybody felt welcomed. Now, that sounds wonderful, ideal to us today, but you have to understand, as much as we think we've got class barriers and race barriers going on, it is nothing, nothing like the first century did. And so in the middle of this very stratified culture, this very divisive and very um, segmented culture, suddenly a group of people break out and they start forming community and they sit down to eat with one another. And eating is a powerful thing. It's, it's, a, it's a nice thing among us. If I invite you over to the house to have a meal together, I mean, that's special and I'm not knocking it. But when you ate together in this culture, you were saying something about the other that you and I, we're together. I, I affirm what you affirm. In fact, uh, where we would settle things with a handshake now, hey, you guys come to a truce and let's shake hands on it. The only way that you would signify a truce in this culture is you would have a meal together because that meant something. And so when they're coming together, they're breaking down walls that existed for centuries. They're breaking down walls and this community is now coming and they're in one another's life. I'll show my age right now. When I was growing up, there was a popular sitcom called Cheers. It was about a bar in Boston. And it had an opening theme song. Sometimes you got to go where... That's what they'd created. Where everybody knows your name. And the Jesus way is to be involved in this where you belong to each other. And then the last one, your, 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 um, your text says they devote themselves to prayer. Or maybe your version says the prayers. And what's going on there is, yes, prayer was definitely a part, but it's not like they devote themselves to all go to their, their different prayer closets and pray on individuals. Remember, predominantly this is a Jewish movement right at this moment. And the part of the Jewish worship was this rhythmic prayer and the set times, and that was all considered worship. And so what they're really doing is they're becoming a worshiping community. Now, again, worship's a word that's pretty much a church word, and we know it's not exclusive to Christianity. But what does it mean to worship? And perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and one of your hang-ups about God is that you try to figure out that if this all-supreme being that created the entire universe, was his whole goal to do that so he could gather groups of people in buildings on Sunday just to sing praises right back to him. Because at that, it almost sounds a little egotistical, right? You know, I mean, like, that, that was his end, end goal? What the people are doing is they're coming into this and they're adopting a new way of life and they're worshiping God. And what worship does, it's not us trying to remind God who He is. God doesn't suffer from an identity crisis. But in worship, we do remind ourselves who we are before God. 
And in case you don't know, that's good news. Who we are before God. And what it is, it's reminding us that the one that did speak the universe into existence is the same one that would rather die than live outside of relationship with us. And so this community was a learning community, learning the way of Jesus together. And it was a sharing and caring community, ministering to others. And it was a togethering, a belonging community. And it was a worshiping community. And I'm telling you, when Peter got a sense of what the resurrection did to people, he didn't want to go back to normal. He, he didn't want to go back to what he thought Jesus meant on that hillside that day. In fact, let me show you this. Go back to that first verse in Matthew. It ends this way. Jesus' words, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And look at this. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I've preached on this before, but I'm going to go back to it again because the day that somebody taught me what this verse really meant changed my view of church forever. It wrecked it in a good way. I was listening to a sermon, and it got to this point, and I had always pictured the church as this, through this verse as, well, it's this little beat-up, it's this miserable little group of people, and all we're trying to do is we're just trying to hang on to each other because big, mean culture's out there. If we can just hang on long enough, we'll make it, you know, but we're going to be bloodied and bruised before it's all done. I don't know why we're taking on this abuse, but you know, that's what the verse says. Until one day somebody asked the question, are gates a defensive or an offensive weapon? They're defensive. Who in this verse from Jesus is on the defense? Hell. Jesus is saying, when my assembly, when my community comes together, it's not going to come together based on an army or funding. It's not going to come together based on slick organizational strategy. It's not going to come together based on resources or political leverage. And the church, for most of its history, has had none of those. But when my church comes together as a learning, sharing, caring, togethering, worshiping community, under the call that Jesus is Lord, hell can't stop it. Now that was not in Peter's vision. But after the resurrection, he saw it. And the fact that we gather today means it came true. Because governments and oppression and all kinds of things that have been thrown at the church has yet to silence it. And COVID doesn't even count. Because the gates of hell can't stop the church. And so we're not a church that's on the defensive. We're a church on the offensive. 
And I believe God's calling churches, and more specifically, this church, to go and to move. And it's not going to look like it did 18 months ago. But it will be powered by the Spirit of God and the claim that Jesus is Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that so often we've layered stuff on top of your church and we've got it so confused and we've got it so blurred at times. So I thank you that over this last season you have cleared the decks. Now, Father, give us the original vision. Give us the original call and let us be that church again. Father, I pray for anybody that hears this message and they think, well, if that's church, I'd be a part of that. Father, may we live out being that church, being that kind of place that rallies around the claim that Jesus is Lord and believes that even hell can't stand against us. Father, I ask all this in the name of Jesus, the one that did lay down his life, the one that said he would build the church. Help us to trust him in that as we trust him with our very lives. In his holy name we pray. Amen.